I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Guy Barter, Chief Horticulturist here at the RHS. In today's podcast, as RHS scientists reveal which pests gardeners reported as the most problematic in 2018, we're focusing on garden nasties. We'll review the results of the top 10 charts of pest problems, plus we'll hear how research into slug deterrence is progressing, and how new legislation about chemical controls and slug pellets might impact gardeners. Hello, what an incredibly mild February we had. It gave me the chance to get ahead sowing carrots and parsnips, which is really important because if we have a dry summer, the carrots and parsnips will have deep, long roots that will be able to suck moisture out of the soil and save watering. So, after a good start to the season, let's join the garden advice team at Wisley as they tackle some of your spring gardening queries. Hello, I'm Lee Hunt, and again, we're here to answer your questions. This time, I'm joined by Jenny Bowden and Rebecca Mealy. Hi. Hello there. The first set of questions are all from St. Patrick's School in Stratford, East London, and Panda's class, which is year one. They've just joined the campaign for school gardening and they want to find out lots of different things. Their first question comes from Mohammed, age six. He wants to know, how do you grow flowers from flowers? Well, it covers potentially quite a lot, but it depends what kind of flowers you want to grow. So if you want to grow plants that just last for a year, say like sunflowers or red poppies, then you'd sow seeds and you'd do that in spring. For the other plants, some of the longer-lived ones, for example, delphiniums, something like that, then you would actually multiply them and get more by digging up a clump and splitting them up. So you actually split the roots up and then you can give some to your friends and you can replant some in your garden. And the other way of making flowers from flowers is by taking cuttings which is a little bit more complicated, where you take a little bit of the stem of the plant. Usually things are like woody, so slightly more sturdy things that last for many years. So you take a little piece of the stem and you put it in the ground and it grows. That's to put it very, very basically. Becky, I'm thinking at this time of year, you can almost get like a pencil's worth of stem and stick it in the ground. Oh, yeah. So all the woody things like your cornus, willow, all of those, you can take a nice stem cutting, put it in the ground and away it goes. Dead easy. 
Now, Hattie's got quite a similar question, but I can see she's coming from a completely different angle, which is, can you grow flowers from leaves? Yeah, that's one of the most fun things. I, I really like doing leaf cuttings. So like from your streptocarpus or your begonias. So with begonias, you, you actually can cut a square. So as long as you're cutting across a vein in the leaf and then you put it on top of a, a damp compost, keep it nice and warm and humid. And then the actual where the veins are, little leaves will start to appear. And it's amazing how it happens. And then succulents as well. You can grow succulents from just leaf and put it in the ground and away it goes. I think often with that, it's about just bearing with it, isn't it? Because sometimes they look a bit shriveled and a bit, a bit like they're not going to do anything, but it's just wait, wait, wait. And, and don't overwater because that's another thing. Kids are a little bit kind of like, they like their watering. <laughs> <laughs> are purple carrots actually carrots or long beetroots? And that's from Flory, who's age six. And she wants to know how do they get their colour? Well, it's quite an interesting question because carrots were originally purple. They are natives of Afghanistan. There are slightly different shades of carrots over that area, but purple ones were the original ones. And gradually through breeding, you gradually got to the orange ones, which were sort of seen in the form that we know them now from about the 1600s. And the way they get their colour is uh, from chemicals called anthocyanins, which are really, really good for you. So they're not beetroots. They are carrots. They're completely distinct. They're actually in a different family of plants. But the thing about purple carrots is they do have orange in the middle, usually orange or yellow in the middle, but they are still even better for you than the plain classic orange carrot. There's also a kind of history lesson fable, isn't there, that mm. goes with this, which is when we needed a new Protestant king, and as you're saying, in the late 17th century, and that king was called William of Orange. Of course, the carrot at that time, we had lots of options, but it was seen almost as the patriotic choice was the orange carrot. And it seems to be from that time that orange became more commonly grown and eaten. So in some respects, when you kind of look back through history, it seems at that point, the other coloured carrots died out. And it's only now that we're getting them back and to try them. But as you're finding that they're not actually very different in taste, a lot of it's in the colour and the visual. And it's really nice because um, you can grow them at home and you don't see them in the shops. That's one great reason for growing vegetables is that you can pick out those varieties that you don't normally get. Our next question is from Ollie, age seven. How can you tell the difference between good caterpillars and bad caterpillars? Well, I think that's one that appeals to all gardeners. So, Becky, what do you think? Well, I mean, sometimes people consider the bad caterpillars to be the ones that are eating the things that they want to grow. So like cabbages, your cabbage whites. And you'd normally find them munching the plants that you want to keep and grow. So the easiest thing is just to pick them off and deal with them. But for me, some of the bad caterpillars are the caterpillars you shouldn't actually be picking up. So these generally tend to be the hairy caterpillars. And what happens is that the actual hair on them can be a bit of an irritation to your skin. And if you're asthmatic, potentially if you inhale it, you could have adverse effects. So with caterpillars, it's always better just to kind of look at them, admire them, because they, they are fun things. I mean, one of my favourite caterpillars is the elephant hawk moth caterpillar with the nice big eyes, and they're quite fun to see out and about. But yeah, generally, I don't think that there's a bad caterpillar. It's just that they're in the wrong place and they just need to be moved along or have kept as a little pet for a little while because I'm, I'm very good at giving my... I used to give my daughter the um, tomato moths. So, Jenny, obviously there are certain crops like cabbages where we might want to keep the cabbage whites off. 
what kind of things could we do to keep those caterpillar pests away? Yeah, brassicas get everything, don't they? So really, from the time that you plant them out as little transplants, that is the time to cover them with an insect mesh, quite fine, so that not even whitefly can get through. That's one of the main pests they get. And of course, the cabbage whites, butterflies, which can squeeze through quite small squares. So it's best just to start off with an insect mesh right from the very, very beginning. And lots of the common things like red admirals will tend to go on other plants, but also mm. things like stinging nettles as well. So if you can leave that wild corner in your garden, or at least if you know there's a mixture of gardens in your neighbourhood, so you've kind of got a wild one and a cultivated one, they'll have the different habitats to go with. So they have caspillas of one type in one area and different things in a different place. So it's kind of diversity breeding diversity. We've got a question here from a teacher in Panda's class, uh, Mrs Stratton, asking, can fake plants displayed or used as green hedges in our playground help pollution levels? They've built some at our school, but I'm unsure if artificial ones will make a difference or should we grow the real plants up them to help the children's air quality? Now, it grieves me to say this, but probably if you put up some kind of fake plants, it will have some effect at removing pollution. The, the simple reason for that is if you get a fake plant, it's going to have quite a complex branched structure. And that for a certain amount, that will actually allow the dust to pass through on the air. And because there's a large surface area and all those branch structures, you'll get some pollution deposited on it. But plants are much better because they're much more highly complicated we haven't just got fake molded leaves here we've got leaves with hairs on them we've got scaly bark and that added surface area and texture means that there's much more chance for the pollution to be deposited to be captured on those surfaces so if you can get in whether it's things like hawthorn or indeed things like cotoneaster thuya so the western red cedar all those kind of things are fairly quick growing. The hawthorn, of course, is native. So if you want to go down that route, you've got an option. But they're all going to do more filtering of pollution. So, OK, yes, it has a value, the fake stuff. But the real stuff, of course, is much better at it. It's been great to have some questions from children. And we'll be really keen to hear more. So do email us at podcast at rhs.org.uk. Not only do they challenge us in many respects, but they make us rethink the basics as well and how things work, which of course kids are great at asking those basic questions on why, why, why. So let us know. Back to some questions from our listeners. Tony Rigg has emailed in, is there an organic or non-chemical way of getting rid of blackfly? It's disgusting. I am worried that it's causing lasting damage to my plants. He doesn't say which plants are suffering from the black fly, but it sounds as though they're kind of long-term plants. Certainly, black fly can infest things like Philadelphus, for example, and it won't cause lasting damage, but it can suck the sap out and weaken plants, I suppose. I'm quite a big fan of a hose pipe, actually, um, yeah. and I will sort of take individual tips of plants and squirt the hose on it and get a good deal of satisfaction out of that and globe artichokes are the same they are so so prone and you also see ladybirds on them at the same time so it's a shame to sort of disturb those so I try I do try to avoid the ladybirds but the hose pipe can do quite a good job on the pests otherwise you can rub them off which isn't really 
quite so satisfying and it's oh, a no, bit I, messy really i love squishing them off so there we are it's whatever <laughs> whatever method uh, you fancy but it's not very easy and you have to go out there regularly they breed so fast that really it's a couple of times a week we've got uh, an email from jane warmsley in derbyshire uh, who's asking about natural dyeing what plants and flowers can i grow to create interesting yarn and fabric dyes the garden is full of plants which have dyes in which you could use in dyeing fabric. For example, uh, St John's wort gives you greens and maroons and golds and rhubarb can be used as well as a dye. But more interestingly, it can also be used as a fixative because after you've dyed your yarn, then you need to actually fix it with something called a mordant. And rhubarb is actually one of those. Otherwise, you'd be using something like alum or tin. But the colours go on. Sunflowers will give you deep olive greens. Purple loosestrife will give you golds and browns and black. All of these plants are hardy, so they're good for growing in this country. And then also purple carrots. You can learn an awful lot more about this at Rosemore, where they're having a yarn festival from the 6th to the 7th of April this year. Dina Thomas has emailed in. There are dry patches on the leaves of my box hedges. Would this be frost or wind damage? Or is it the dreaded box blight or moth? How do I tell? And if it is blight... Can it be saved or is it doomed? So with the box blight, so if it is wind damage or sun damage, it tends to go kind of a papery straw colour at the top and then it's a little bit see-through and transparent. Then if it's the box blight, you tend to get spores underneath the leaf and streaks on the actual stems. And then with the caterpillar, you get skeletons of the leaf, so they look like the little half moons that they've they've munched in, and then also you get the webbing. So it's good to have a good ferret around in the actual box shrub to see what, because the, the caterpillars do tend to be kind of buried right within, rather than actually on the surface and top. And it also depends on the location and what kind of weather we've had for the year. Cause, so last year, because we had the snow, we got a lot of snow damage from the snow being sat on top of the hedges. It's much easier to control the box tree moth than it is the blight because you can put up a trap and you can spray for that. So the trap would tell you when they're about and then you know from the timing fairly shortly after there's going to be caterpillars present that you could then pick off or spray. With the box blight it's more difficult because if you do get it and you see those black streaks on the stem then you can try and cut out those areas, remove effective plants. You can try the, the sprays again. But any leaf litter with spores on potentially could reinfect that plant or the plants nearby. So it can be quite a difficult game of management to try and keep it looking good. Yeah, it's using good hygiene, not overfeeding, because obviously the lush green leaves can catch the blight more. And then after you've trimmed it, get the old leaf blower out and blow out all any of the old leaves and that just helps, you know, alleviate any source of infection. It's worth definitely coming now to Wisley because behind the canal in the wall garden, a little box hedge demonstration, which where they're all, none of them are box, they're all replacement options. Some of them are green, some of them are yellow or even bronze coloured. But there's some really nice things coming along now. And it's worth coming to see which ones you like the look of as well. So if you do have to make that final decision of replacement, there are options there for you. 
You can find links to more information about all the topics we've talked about today on our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. The advice team will be back answering gardeners' questions next month. In the meantime, remember that if you're an RHS member, you can contact the team throughout the year for advice on any horticultural problem. Another member benefit is that you can visit our beautiful RHS gardens in Devon, Yorkshire, Essex and Surrey as many times as you like without paying a penny to get in. If you're not a member but you'd like to sample them for free, head down to your nearest garden on the 19th of March when they're all open, all day, for free. And of course, if you are a member, why not visit with friends and family for a bargain springtime day out? Now, as promised, pesky pests. Each year, the scientists in the RHS Entomology and Plant Pathology Departments compile and analyse the patterns of pests and diseases reported to the advisory teams by our members. These help us track emerging and growing problems. They tell us about the impact of climatic conditions or other factors on certain garden problems. The reports and charts for 2018 were released this morning and make interesting reading. Hello there, it's uh, Andy Salisbury, Principal Entomologist for the RHS here at Wisley. In at 10 are ants. These are often problems in lawns, often in pots and containers. They don't directly damage plants, but they can cause drainage issues. Very difficult to control. There's no direct pesticides for them. So often a case it is just a case of living with them and trying to uh, make any plants they're affecting as healthy as possible. At equal eighth, so cushion scale and capsid bug, they are both sap-sucking insects and both often in the top 10. Cushion scale largely affects thick-leaved evergreen shrubs such as holly, camellia, rhododendron and it matures in late winter, produces copious amounts of honeydew and you get a black sooty mould growing on the plants. Best time to control that one is midsummer when the eggs hatch. So that's June or July when the eggs hatch and then hopefully you won't see the problems in late winter, early spring the next year. Capsid bug, another sap sucker, but what this one does is it feeds on young growth, so young buds, and where it feeds, it causes a few plant cells to die. So as the leaf blood or flower blood expands, the flower might be aborted, or the leaf ends up being very distorted and full of holes. Another quite difficult one to control. Plants generally survive, but all you can do is really sort of use pesticides against it. But picking up on the best time to do that, by the time you notice the damage, it's often too late to do anything. At number seven, dropping a number of places from its second place in 2017, is the fuchsia gall mite. This is a microscopic mite. It originates from South America, but has been spread around the world with plant trade. Arrived in the UK in about 2007, it's becoming widespread in southern England, and it causes gross distortion of the growing tips of fuchsias. If they are looking swollen, this is likely to be the problem. Not a great deal you can do other than cut this one out. So in at six, a new one to the top 10. This first appearance in the top 10, the Southern Green Chillbug, a native to Southern Europe. It's become established in the UK over the past decade or so. We think the warm late spring, early summer last year helped advance this and, and increase its numbers. We think it's appearing too late in the season in the UK to cause serious damage, but it's certainly very noticeable if you see it on your veg. At five, woolly aphid. This is a black fly that covers itself in a white waxy material found on apples, pyracantha and cotoneaster. It's been around in the UK for well over 100 years 
and is often in the top 10. Last year it was at number 10, this year at number 5. Next year it might drop or, or go up slightly, but it's a, a frequent inquiry. At 4, a common top 5 problem, the vine weevil, those grubs which feed on plant roots over the winter and often cause plant death, and the adults which uh, cause leaf notching in thick-leaved evergreen shrubs. At 3, viburnum beetle. Now this is an insect that's native, as its name suggests, it feeds on viburnum, causing lots of holes in the leaves. But over the past two decades, this insect has become much more of a problem in gardens and is now a frequent in the top 10. And this is one of its few appearances in the top three. So hopefully this will become less prevalent uh, next year. At two, often number one, slugs and snails. We're all familiar with this problem. Slugs and snails found in most gardens feed on a wide range of plants. And at number one for the second year running is the box tree caterpillar. This is a moth which was first found in gardens in the UK in about 2011 and it has been increasing ever since. This is now a big problem for those people trying to grow box in London and the surrounding areas and last year it was found in the Republic and Northern Ireland in North Wales. Caterpillars can absolutely defoliate box and it is a difficult problem to control. Andrew Salisbury. You can read more on our website. Tune in to our next podcast to hear the lowdown on which plant diseases are worrying gardeners in the UK. And finally, slugs. Last year, our slug and snail expert, Dr Hayley Jones, conducted extensive research into slug deterrents and barriers. She brought science to the rather anecdotal comparison of prevention methods many gardeners had relied on. There are changes in legislation coming that will restrict the chemical methods gardeners can use to beat these beasts. We joined Dr Jones to learn what these new laws might mean for home gardeners. Over the last few years I've been doing some different experiments on slugs and snails and how gardeners can control them. There's one in particular that was completed where we were looking at different combinations of control methods. So we were looking at using either metaldehyde slug pellets, ferric phosphate slug pellets, or the nematode biological control with or without mulch, which is a cultural control against slugs and snails. That study showed some some slightly complicated results because we saw slightly different patterns in which control options worked best depending on which plant we were looking at and also across the two different sites. We had sites here at Wisley and also some plots at Harlow Carr in Yorkshire. We have very different climates, probably very different slugs and snails present in the area so we were expecting these kind of differences. An overall trend that you might be able to see is that the metaldehyde slug pellets work the best. But we did also find that the ferric phosphate slug pellets and the nematode biological control can work just as well as metaldehyde in some situations, particularly when they are combined with mulch. So by combining some of these more eco-friendly control methods, we can get as good control as gardeners are probably used to getting with metaldehyde slug pellets. This is particularly relevant because as of December, it was announced that metaldehyde is being withdrawn. This means that Over the next six months, it will stop being sold. Uh, It is still legal to sell up until June of this year. After June, there'll be a one-year time period where you can still use it in your garden, uh, using up time. But then after that, it's not allowed to be used anymore and any leftover metaldehyde slug pellets will have to be disposed of. 
the best way to find out how to dispose of your slug pellets or any other pesticide is to look at your local authority or local council website or phone them up to see what disposal and recycling facilities they have and they will know what you should do with leftover chemicals. At the moment there's only really scientific evidence for metaldehyde which is no longer an option. For ferric phosphate slug pellets um, which are certified organic but do still have their risks to other animals that aren't just slugs and snails and for the nematode biological control those are really quite well supported by scientific evidence uh, other options such as barriers i've started to do a bit of work on because there isn't really much scientific evidence for how well they work there's some evidence for copper but in the study that i did copper didn't work as a deterrent we do always recommend that as a kind of a, a first option you protect your plants physically so don't plant out tiny seedlings in places where you know slugs and snails are going to be protect them with cloches and you can turn over the soil and look for any slugs and snails the best way to catch them in the act is to go out at night with a torch because that's when they do their feeding and then you know that they're the ones eating your plants and you can remove them by hand and you can also make your garden more wildlife friendly in the hopes that some of the slug predators will take up residence and help you out there as well. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today on the RHS Gardening Podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight when we will be visiting an award-winning prison garden in Hull, which has inspired people to transform their lives. Until then, from me... Guy Barter and all the podcast team, goodbye. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.